turn to John 5. Now, this is a passage that I'm sure you will get a sense very quickly is not easy to follow. This is not a passage in John that is, I would say, particularly well-known. So, um, but y'all are good listeners. So, let's start in John 5, starting in verse 19. So, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you will not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord.
Thanks be to God. Well, this is not an easy passage, so of all mornings, we better pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us by your word. We know that though it isn't always easy to understand, we know that it's always profitable. And that through it, even the things that are essential are always clear. So we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what voices do you have in your life? Probably a lot. I mean, you have a lot of voices in your life. There's a lot of people you know, a lot of people you talk with. Of course, there's the voices of our families, which are always prominent. Your mother's voice is always in the back of your head somewhere. Um, maybe you like that, maybe you don't, I don't know, but there, it's there. Uh, there's your, maybe your siblings, um, maybe close friends, right? These are people that we're always thinking about. If you're married, of course, your spouse's voice is always back there. Uh, after a while, you kind of have that second voice in your head. Uh, we have lots of voices in our lives. Maybe it's the voice of our children. I won't ask what they're saying, but it'll be there. But of course, there's also the other voices that we seek out. And in some ways, that is the most telling thing. Who are the voices we constantly invite into our lives that we weren't just given? Who are the people that we read all the time or listen to all the time? We have a lot of them, don't we? We've got uh, politicians and pundits. We have lifestyle gurus, influencers, whatever it is that you're into. We have subject matter experts. We have celebrities. We have all these other people. And the thing about especially those voices that we invite into our life is that we we are not only hearing the point that they're making, we're often trying to help ourselves think more like them. I mean, that is maybe the more uncomfortable truth about it, is what does it say, you know, the podcast that you listen to, I mean, what does that say about you and the voices you want feeding your brain and your heart? The, uh, the, the news sources you go to, the people you're really waiting to see their story pop up in Instagram. You know, what does that say about me? What does that say about what I really want? And the point of all of this is that this is the, Jesus is getting at why you should listen to him. If you remember last week, if you were here with us, we talked about a couple of miracles where Jesus healed people. And at the end of the one that's at the beginning of chapter four here, uh, he had started to address the crowd. They were worried about him healing somebody on the Sabbath and all the rigmarole with that that we talked about last week. Uh, and he had started talking about the, to this crowd, and then there was a bit of an editorial comment about why uh, the leaders were mad at him. And then he goes on, and that's where we really pick up this morning. And Jesus is, is asking them why, to consider who they're listening to and why they should listen to him. And Jesus really tells us that they, we should listen to him for three reasons. This is important. This is a hard passage to go sort of verse by verse and tie it all together because there's a lot of 
interconnected and associated ideas. They may or may not be associated in the modern mind very clearly, but they were to the ancient mind. But I think there's three clear strands. Jesus wants us to know that he reveals scripture, that he reveals God, and that he reveals goodness. He reveals scripture, he reveals God, and he reveals goodness. So the first point is that Jesus reveals the scriptures. And this is clearly the point he is driving at because this is where he ends. So in some ways we're moving backwards here. (laughs) This is where he ends, is talking about how they deal with scripture. And he's been talking about how he listens to the Father. He actually talks about that a lot all throughout the Gospel of John. But in this particular passage, he's already mentioned it a few times. And then he gets to verse 31, and he, and he brings up uh, John the Baptist. What testimony are they looking for? He starts to go back to, their, to John the Baptist, a guy that we saw before, and we saw people coming to John with questions about who Jesus was. And John's response to that back in chapter 3 was, he must increase, meaning Jesus, and I must decrease. And Jesus is saying, look, you were willing to go to John. He came stylized as one of these Old Testament prophets, just like he dressed like Elijah and Jeremiah, and he kind of carried himself like they did, and you were at least somewhat willing to listen to him. And you went to him, and sure, he, he heard from God. And, and Jesus is always, is always pretty bullish on this, that John is a prophet. Uh, you never hear Jesus slighting John's ministry. He calls him a burning and shining lamp. And yet, and yet, Jesus' word is better than John's. He keeps insisting on this, right? Verse 36, the testimony I have is greater than that of John. He's not, I'm not just another prophet like John. And he goes on, he says, look, you listen, this is verses uh, 38 or 39 and following. You go to the scriptures and you understand the Bible. They study the Bible a lot. And you think that simply by studying the Bible, you have a guarantee. That simply by knowing a lot about it, you've got it. But Jesus is telling them that if you miss him, you have missed the whole thing. I mean, he goes to the the prophet par excellence, the one who is the most important prophet, Moses. Right, who, of course, the first five books are the books of Moses. And in that sense, Moses is sort of standing in for the whole of the Old Testament here. Right, that he's saying, you, you think you know Moses, but he wrote about me. So if you reject me, you never have really understood him, have you? I mean, in fact, this is what he says. Is, You're going to be accused not by me, but by Moses. You know, Jesus has the gloves off here, you know? Like this, this, is, uh, this is Jesus telling scribes and Pharisees that they've entirely misunderstood the Bible. I mean, I know a lot of pastors, probably myself included, who would be a little bit offended if somebody came to me and said, you've totally misunderstood. I have degrees, you know? <laughs> How could I have misunderstood it? But that's what Jesus is getting at, right? Is that they have studied it. They have, in some sense, you might say, mastered it. They could quote it endlessly. But they've misunderstood it. 
And that's to some degree scary, right? Because you see that in churches as well. That, that call themselves churches of Christ. I'm not talking about that denomination per se, but uh, they, call, they say that they're churches. They say that they're about Christ. And yet, Christ is an afterthought. I mean, woe to us if we ever fall into that trap. Because we can know the scripture, but if we miss Jesus, we've missed the whole thing. Calvin puts it this way, he, uh, talking about this passage, he says, first then, meaning the obvious point, is Christ cannot be properly known from anywhere but the Scriptures. And if that is so, it follows that Scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. Okay? Fair enough. And then he, this is it. Whoever turns aside from this object, in other words, whoever turns aside from the aim of finding Christ, even though he wears himself out all his life in learning, he will never reach the knowledge of truth. Never reach it. And what a thing, right? <laughs> to labor for a long time to understand it and to miss it. That all of Scripture is meant to give us this pattern. And I know that some of you know the Old Testament well enough to be like, uh, I'm not really sure. I know where it's going. I don't know how large chunks of it feel there. And look, we could, we could, maybe we should do some class on this sometime about like Christ in the Old Testament, right? But of course, there are promises and there are prophecies. There are types, the patterns that are established, right, that are only fulfilled in Jesus. There's the fulfillment of the law itself, right, that, that whenever the law is in question, we see that it is Jesus who fulfills it. He, of course, fulfills the moral law on our behalf, being perfect, where we failed. But the ceremonial law, too. Both Paul and the author of Hebrews call it a shadow of the real things that Jesus would accomplish. Even the civil law in the Old Testament is pointing us to the rule of Jesus. So we would have a picture of what it is like when someone who is good and just rules. Of course, there are, you know, innumerable themes in the Old Testament that find their resolution in Jesus. And so that, all that background then is never a waste of time. It is always telling us something about Jesus. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I came not to, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And the word fulfilling means to pour into a form. The idea being that Jesus' ministry its, its purpose, its usefulness is clarified by all that was given in the Old Testament Scriptures, which means that while the Gospels are at the heart of Scripture, they get their, the fullness of their meaning from what came before. So, in that sense, we can say the Gospels have a priority. Our own preaching cycle, you may have noticed this, follows this, right? We start the year in the Gospels. And then we always go in the fall to a major Old Testament book for just this purpose, to help us understand the form that Jesus is filling. To help us understand that. And so all of Scripture is useful, and we can both be Christ-centered and talk about the usefulness of all of Scripture if we understand that all of it really is pointing to Jesus. 
If we take Jesus' own view, that the more you understand of what went before, the more depth of understanding you will have of what he has accomplished. In other words, Scripture requires deep, rich reflection. And we are not usually really good at that. Uh, we like to skim over it. We want the cliff note version. I don't want to slog through all the judgments in Jeremiah. Can I just, can I get the, you know, the one-page summary, executive summary on that? Because uh, it's a lot of judgment. All those laws in Leviticus, I mean, there's a lot. (laughs) Jesus actually does tell us the summary of the law, so... Uh, there is an executive summary on that. But I think the point being that Scripture rewards time and attention and reflection. And this is why when we talk about the Scriptures, actually having some kind of plan to read through them is helpful. Let me me qualify that. A realistic plan to read through them is helpful. Because some of you are having babies and trying to do the read through the Bible in a year program and heaven help you, it's not going to work because you won't be able to stay awake long enough to get through it. A realistic plan, right? And, and look, we're all in different places too. I mean, I know that some of you may feel like I know, I've read the whole Bible. I know all this. Okay, maybe you can bite off bigger chunks as you go because you know the terrain. Others of you may feel like I, I, there's just big chunks I don't know anything about. And I go, okay. And that's okay. What God, God isn't asking today that you know everything about his word. He is asking you to enter into his word. He is asking you to engage with it consistently, to give time to it, and to give attention to it, which means you've got to do something to regain your attention, right? Put the phone away. Find some time where you won't be distracted. And it means we're supposed to reflect on it. And that can mean a lot of things. That can mean resources. You can always call me, email me uh, if you're looking for something to help. Uh, it means we don't read it alone. I mean, this is the thing. We're, we are all supposed to be studying the Word if you're in the faith. That's what you're called to do. And yet, we're never to, told to read Scripture alone. We're always called to read it together as his people. So, you know, bringing it up to others is not a sign of failure. It's a sign of a good reading habit. If you really want to understand, this is why you don't, you have a harder time. I I was an English major. You have a harder time understanding a book when you just read it by yourself. It actually is better for your understanding to be in a class or to be in a, like a reading club or to be in, you know, or to look up other reasons. You know, these, these things are helpful for your actual understanding. The more we just read it in isolation, the more we are likely to miss out. And of course, to, to, to reflect on it, though, is to ask this question, and this is Jesus' point, is not merely all the facts, all the trivia, all the things that I could get straight. It is to find Him. Because you can do all of those other things, but if you miss Jesus, it has been a big, grand waste of time.
That if that isn't the question that you're always seeking out, is what do I find out about what he has done? I'm missing out. I can spend all that time wanting to know what does the Bible say about this and what does the Bible say about that and I will never get to the actual answer if I haven't gotten to Christ. So Jesus is saying, look, he's the key to understanding all of Scripture. What, what his own people were deeply, deeply invested in They could not understand without him. But he's also saying that he not only reveals Scripture, he reveals God. He keeps talking about his relationship with the Father. This is the previous passage. This is what started to scandalize people is how familiar he seems to be with the Father. And so he goes on and talk about over and over and over again his relationship with him. Uh, Verses 22 and 23, right? He, He talks about how he the Father honors him, and he is honoring the Father. He talks about in verse 44 that one of the reasons they misunderstand the Bible is because they go for their own glory. One of the reasons that they're missing out on all that it offers is because they're not seeking the glory of God, they're seeking their own glory. And they're willing to give it to each other, give each other glory, but they're not looking for his glory. And of course, Jesus ends up in, uh, in verse 37 talking about the kind of God that he is. He's a God that we haven't seen, that we haven't heard. There's a great, uh, you know, one of those sort of classic definitions of God, at least in Presbyterian circles, is out of the Westminster Confession. It says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There's a funny story behind that definition of God. That's like a mouthful. <laughs> uh, is the, you know, these, guys, these were guys in the 17th century trying to come up with this doctrinal statement, and they they realized they had to have a definition of God clear in there, and no one wanted to write it. <laughs> and so, uh, and so they're, they're talking through this. They finally assigned one guy, guy to do it, uh, the youngest guy at the group. Um, and he said, okay, but we got to pray. And he started his prayer with, oh, God, you are a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, etc., etc. Et and everybody, <laughs> if he finished praying, and everybody said, "We should write that down." <laughs> that's that's a good place to go. But you get the point, right? That God is bigger than our categories. He is, he can't be found, of course, because he is not matter and energy. He is the the medium in which matter and energy even has its meaning. He is beyond space and time because he gives space and time their meaning. He is too great for us. And so when Jesus talks about being sent from the Father, what he is revealing is not God's being as it is. I know these are kind of heady concepts, right? But he's not showing us God in the sense of 
who he is from eternity past, he is showing us what the character of God is like. He is the revelation of God's character. In other words, the Father sent him and honors him so that he can show us what God is really like. No wonder he keeps talking about the love that the Father has for him because that is what God is like. It's John who wrote this gospel that later in a letter will say God is love. And sort of alone among the attributes, you can just sort of say God is love, period, (laughs) without really qualifying it that God is love. And yet we don't want a God like that. And this is what Jesus keeps coming back to, right? Is we want a God that's going to rubber stamp us. We don't want a God that's that different. We want a God that's just like us. That's why we glory in other people and secretly, not so secretly, wanting them to give us glory back, right? You know the game. You want to compliment people, partly so that they return the compl- you know, compliment back to you. This is how we do. We get glory from one another, but... That is why we have difficulty with God, because God is not interested in just telling us we're okay. God is not interested in telling us everything's just fine. And he's not interested in answering us for the things that we think he ought to be doing better. And I I know that there's a lot of hard questions that come out of that, right? There's a lot of questions about the problem of evil, and other things that we desperately want questions for. And by the way, these are questions voiced all throughout Scripture. I mean, what is the book of Job but a long discussion about the problem of evil, the problem of suffering? There's innumerable psalms about it. It comes up over and over and over again. There are, we have questions about the moral positions that God takes. And yet, and yet, if we want to say that we're not just making up a God that's convenient for us, then we have to have categories, of course, for a God who sees things differently than we do. If he is, after all, creator, and if he is the one bringing all of creation to its appointed end, then we probably ought to expect his view of what our lives should be to be a little different than what I view it. I mean, I mean, my view of my life has changed over the years. Right? When I was three, right, a good meal was all candy, right? It made a lot of sense to me. Of course it did. It's not what I needed, of course, and I did come to see that, but I thought at the time I knew everything. When I was 15, I thought I had everything figured out about what I should do with my life. Okay, maybe it wasn't a meal of candy, but there's a lot of things that I realize in retrospect that I thought I wanted in life that weren't really good or helpful. There are things you realize when you're 25. 
that you think you want that you don't. I imagine when I'm 70, there will be things that I still think I want that I probably shouldn't have. Things I think are wise or good that I shouldn't do. How could I possibly think that the one who created us should just answer to my whims about what I think is good for my life? How could I possibly understand if I can't even keep my own schedule straight how God should run the universe? I mean, we're barely keeping it together at the Mullen household. You know what I'm saying? Like this is, and I think I've got, I've got a right to tell God how he ought to run the show down here. I mean, come on. Do we have a category for the fact that God might see things differently than we do? That God might know better than we do? If after all, he is the one in whom we live and breathe and have our being, Perhaps he knows just a little bit better than we do. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, you think you want a God that has your priorities. But you're wrong. And Jesus is showing us what the priorities of God are. That's what he came to do. Those are the works he came to do. And it's interesting because obviously in the immediate context of this, when Jesus talks about the works that he's doing, he's of course talking about the miracles. But he also has an unsettling way all throughout the Gospel of John at hinting that there's something ahead that he's got to accomplish. He has his hour that lies ahead. He's got something to do that lies ahead. And as we even talked about with the miracles last week, those are really an advanced payment (laughs) on what Jesus will earn at the cross. The right to break the power of sin and death. You see, when Jesus is talking about the works that the Father has given him, he is talking about going to the cross. And listen, it it is the more that we see Jesus as the crucified and risen one, the, that we can get a grip on our lack of understanding. Because we may not understand what God is doing, we may not understand the reasons he has to let the things go on that go on, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Because he's deeply invested. Because he gave up his life. Because of the evil that we've done. Because he gave up his life because of what we have done. He gave up his life because he is good and we are not. So if you want to know what he thinks about what you are doing with your life, you will not find an answer until you go to the cross. Because what Jesus thinks about your life is that you need someone to die in your place. What Jesus thinks about the problems of this world is that he will have to come and die 
to make it right. And so if you struggle to understand who God is and why he has reasons for what he does, you're not going to get all the answers. I tend to think we probably don't have the ability to understand it all. But we know this, that he gave up his life for us. That he gave up his life to heal this sin-sick world. So he reveals the scriptures and he reveals God. And again, I said these are all intertangled ideas. He reveals goodness. Perhaps you've realized we've already started to touch on this, but he does talk over and over again about coming because the Father sent him. This is true in all the Gospels. Jesus goes back to that idea over and over again. In verse 19, that starts off the passage. He says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. In verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus is not interested in doing anything but what the Father wants him to do. And the reason for this, you see, we read this and might hear that and think, well, okay, Jesus is introducing a distinction between his will and the Father's will, and he's implying that he has other ideas about what could happen. But in fact, what Jesus is doing is saying the opposite, because Jesus is constantly being accused, and we we know this from other passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of being an agent of Satan. In other words, they couldn't deny that he, his miraculous power, I mean, it's hard to deny when the guy who had been crippled for 38 years walks. He, he, he can't, they can't deny that he is doing powerful things, so they question his motives. So Jesus is saying, yes, the Father and the Son, there is some distinction between us, but my will is always in line with the Father's. He's not introducing the hypothetical that he might see things differently. He's saying, no, I always see them the way the Father sees them. So that you cannot accept my works without accepting that I am from the Father. I am expressing the goodness of his character in full. Again, the bond of love that he keeps talking about is so helpful to understand here then because Jesus is saying, look, I come from the Father, full of his love, full of all the goodness that is in God. And so God is, the Father is giving him everything. He mentions a bunch of things, right? He, verses, and he mentions life in verse 21 and then all through 25 to 28. He mentions judgment in 22, 28, 30. He mentions the works that he's been given in verse 36. He keeps talking about all these things he's been given from the Father. He's been given authority and honor from the Father. I mean, we could go on. <laughs> he, keeps ta- he keeps bringing up this list of all these things that come from the Father And the point of it is, is that now that he has taken on flesh, he is working something out here in his life as a human that will work the goodness of God himself into us. It will work life itself into us. And even when he brings up being assigned judgment, it is because it is the full goodness of God that is at work. Because judgment 
as uncomfortable as that topic is, is about goodness. Even if we don't like the idea that God is a judge, we don't like that idea because we think we should be arbiters of goodness. Whether me personally or at least the people I associate with. I mean, this is, this is our this is our discourse right now, the public discourse. Now that God has sort of faded into the background of public discourse, what are we left with? But, but you know, groups trying to grab power. I mean, this is why politics has become so idolatrous, right? Is because we don't have any way of kind of coming to agreement, so we've got to take power. And look, Christians have fallen right into that trap just as much as anybody else. The point being that somebody has to exercise judgment. If there's any goodness, somebody has to. We would rather do it ourselves. Thank you very much. And I don't know that it's working that well. I mean, we could go down a long list of that. And I'm tempted, of course, to always look at the other people I disagree with and say, who do they think they are? But of course, who do I think I am? There's a great line in one of Flannery O'Connor's stories about this woman who's coming to realize just how proud she is of being the type of person that has a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. And heaven help us if that's what we think we are. Jesus comes in judgment because he is good, because this world needs to be set right. And we are not the ones to do it. God is the one who will do it. And isn't it interesting that the first place Jesus begins with judgment is by taking the judgment we deserve? See, this is, this is again, the thing that we miss when we miss that the whole point of Scripture is about Jesus is because even in the act of judgment, the first thing God does is put himself in our place so that anyone who will take shelter in him need not fear. Anyone who will run to Jesus doesn't need to be afraid of the judgment. They will be raised to life. They will have a resurrection of life, not the resurrection of judgment, as he says in verse 29. You see the difference, don't you? That even in the exercise of judgment, God shows that he is for anyone that will come to him. Anyone that will come to his son. And that means we need to relearn what goodness is. We need to start to understand goodness more and more in terms of who Jesus is and what his character is and not whatever ideas I bring to the table. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in his sacrificial love. That Jesus, Jesus is good because he has shown himself to be good over and over and over again. God's goodness is on full display even in the moment of judgment. When he gives his life in our place, God's goodness is on display. Because the judgment, the resurrection that is promised, even for those who end up in judgment, 
They are judged not because they were worse, but because they refused him. They were offered the chance to admit, I need somebody else. And that ought to give a that ought to give a lot of humility to those of us who do follow Jesus. Our judgment is not that we are better people, but that Jesus is better than I was. The comparison should never be between me and those outside of the church. It should be me and what Jesus has done. And Jesus offers Anyone who's willing to make that comparison can take shelter in him. Jesus has the full display of God's goodness for us when he goes to the cross. If you want to know, is God good, you should look at the cross. That's the place to start. That's what Jesus keeps saying is, look, if you're going to ask these hard questions about what the Bible teaches, about who God is, about whether he's really good. You have to follow my works and see where they lead because they lead to his sacrifice on our behalf. So let's go to the table with that in mind. Father, we thank you that you meet us not on the basis of what we've accomplished, not on the basis of what we achieve, but you meet us because of the blood of your son and that our confidence doesn't rest in us being better than others, but rather in the goodness of Jesus so that we don't have to ask ourselves, am I better than my neighbor? We only need to ask ourselves, do I need Jesus? Do I need what he offers? And for everyone who can answer that question, yes, Lord, we pray that this meal would be food for our souls. And if anybody isn't sure how to answer that question, Lord, we do pray that you would make it clear by your spirit. We ask it in his name. Amen.